Question 91 of Summa Theologica Prima Secunde Treatise on Law This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Prima Secunde Treatise on Law by St. Thomas Aquinas Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province Question 91 of the various kinds of law in six articles. We must now consider the various kinds of law, under which head there are six points of inquiry. First, whether there is an eternal law. Second, whether there is a natural law. Third, whether there is a human law. Fourth, whether there is a divine law. Fifth, whether there is one divine law or several. Sixth, whether there is a law of sin. First article, whether there is an eternal law. Objection one, it would seem that there is no eternal law. Because every law is imposed on someone but there was not someone from eternity on whom a law could be imposed, since God alone was from eternity. Therefore, no law is eternal. Objection to. Further, promulgation is essential to law. But promulgation could not be from eternity, because there was no one to whom it could be promulgated from eternity. Therefore, no law can be eternal. Objection 3. Further, a law implies order to an end. But nothing ordained to an end is eternal, for the last end alone is eternal. Therefore, no law is eternal. On the contrary, Augustine says in On Free Will 1.6, That law which is the supreme reason cannot be understood to be otherwise than unchangeable and eternal. I answer that, as stated above in question 90, article 1, second reply, as well as in articles 3 and 4, a law is nothing else but a dictate of practical reason emanating from the ruler who governs a perfect community. Now it is evident, granted that the world is ruled by divine providence, as was stated in the first part, question 22, articles 1 and 2, that the whole community of the universe is governed by divine reason. Wherefore, the very idea of the government of things in God the ruler of the universe has the nature of a law. And since the divine reason's conception of things is not subject to time but is eternal, according to Proverbs 8.23, therefore it is that this kind of law must be called eternal. Reply to Objection 1. Those things that are not in themselves exist with God inasmuch as they are foreknown and preordained by him according to Romans 4.17. 
who calls those things that are not as those that are. Accordingly, the eternal concept of the divine law bears the character of an eternal law, insofar as it is ordained by God to the government of things foreknown by him. Reply to Objection 2. Promulgation is made by word of mouth or in writing, and in both ways the eternal law is promulgated, because both the divine word and the writing of the book of life are eternal. But the promulgation cannot be from eternity on the part of the creature that hears or reads. Reply to Objection 3. The law implies order to the end actively, insofar as it directs certain things to the end, but not passively, that is to say, the law itself is not ordained to the end, except accidentally, in a governor whose end is extrinsic to him, and to which end his law must needs be ordained. But the end of the divine government is God himself, and his law is not distinct from himself. Wherefore, the eternal law is not ordained to another end. Second article, whether there is in us a natural law. Objection 1. It would seem that there is no natural law in us. Because man is governed sufficiently by the eternal law. For Augustine says in On the Free Will 1 that the eternal law is that by which it is right that all things should be most orderly. But nature does not abound in superfluities, as neither does she fail in necessaries. Therefore, no law is natural to man. Objection to. Further, by the law, man is directed, in his acts, to the end, as stated above in question 90, article 2. But the directing of human acts to their end is not a function of nature, as is the case in irrational creatures, which act for an end solely by their natural appetite. Whereas man acts for an end by his reason and will. Therefore, no law is natural to man. Objection 3. Further, the more a man is free, the less he is under the law. But man is freer than all the animals on account of his free will, with which he is endowed above all other animals. Since, therefore, other animals are not subject to a natural law, neither is man subject to a natural law. On the contrary, a gloss on Romans 2.14. When the Gentiles who have not the law do by nature those things that are of the law, comments as follows. Although they have no written law, yet they have the natural law, whereby each one knows and is conscious of what is good and what is evil. I answer that, as stated above in question 90, article 1, first reply. Law 
being a rule and measure, can be in a person in two ways. In one way, as in him that rules and measures, in another way, as in that which is ruled and measured, since a thing is ruled and measured in so far as it partakes of the rule or measure. Wherefore, since all things subject to divine providence are ruled and measured by the eternal law, as was stated above in Article 1, it is evident that all things partake somewhat of the eternal law, in so far as, namely, from its being imprinted on them, they derive their respective inclinations to their proper acts and ends. Now among all others, the rational creature is subject to divine providence in the most excellent way, in so far as it partakes of a share of providence by being provident both for itself and for others. Wherefore, it has a share of the eternal reason, whereby it has a natural inclination to its proper act and end. And this participation of the eternal law in the rational creature is called the natural law. Hence the psalmist, after saying, in Psalm 4, verse 6, Offer up the sacrifice of justice. As though someone asked what the works of justice are, adds, Many say, Who showeth us good things? In answer to which question he says, The light of thy countenance, O Lord, is signed upon us. Thus implying that the light of natural reason, whereby we discern what is good and what is evil, which is the function of the natural law, is nothing else than an imprint on us of the divine light. It is therefore evident that the natural law is nothing else than the rational creature's participation of the eternal law. Reply to Objection 1. This argument would hold if the natural law were something different from the eternal law, whereas it is nothing but a participation thereof, as stated above. Reply to Objection 2. Every act of reason and will in us is based on that which is according to nature, as stated above in Question 10, Article 1. For every act of reasoning is based on principles that are known naturally, and every act of appetite in respect of the means is derived from the natural appetite in respect of the last end. Accordingly, the first direction of our acts to their end must needs be in virtue of the natural law. Reply to Objection 3. Even irrational animals partake in their own way of the eternal reason, just as the rational creature does. But because the rational creature partakes thereof in an intellectual and rational manner, therefore the participation of the eternal law in the rational creature is properly called a law since a law is something pertaining to reason, as stated above in question 90, article 1. Irrational creatures, however, do not partake thereof in a rational manner, wherefore there is no participation of the eternal law in them, except by way of similitude. Third article, whether there is a human law. 
Objection 1. It would seem that there is not a human law. For the natural law is a participation of the eternal law, as stated above in Article 2. Now through the eternal law, all things are most orderly, as Augustine states in On Free Will 1.6. Therefore, the natural law suffices for the ordering of all human affairs. Consequently, there is no need for a human law. Objection 2. Further, a law bears the character of a measure, as stated above, in question 90, article 1. But human reason is not a measure of things, but vice versa, as stated in Metaphysics 10.5. Therefore, no law can emanate from human reason. Objection 3. Further, a measure should be most certain, as stated in Metaphysics 10.3. But the dictates of human reason in matters of conduct are uncertain, according to Wisdom 9.14. The thoughts of mortal men are fearful, and our counsels uncertain. Therefore, no law can emanate from human reason. On the contrary, Augustine, in On Free Will 1.6, distinguishes two kinds of law, the one eternal, the other temporal, which he calls human. I answer that, as stated above in question 90, article 1, second reply, a law is a dictate of the practical reason. Now, it is to be observed that the same procedure takes place in the practical and in the speculative reason. For each proceeds from principles to conclusions, as stated above, in the same place. Accordingly, we conclude that just as, in the speculative reason, from naturally known indemonstrable principles, we draw the conclusions of the various sciences, the knowledge of which is not imparted to us by nature, but acquired by the efforts of reason, so too it is from the precepts of the natural law, as from general and indemonstrable principles, that the human reason needs to proceed to the more particular determination of certain matters. These particular determinations, devised by human reason, are called human laws, provided the other essential conditions of law be observed, as stated above in question 90, articles 2, 3, and 4. Wherefore Tully says in On the Art of Rhetoric 2 that Justice has its source in nature. Thence certain things came into custom by reason of their utility. Afterwards, these things which emanated from nature and were approved by custom were sanctioned by fear and reverence for the law. Reply to Objection 1 the human reason cannot have a full participation of the dictate of the divine reason, but according to its own mode, and imperfectly. Consequently, as on the part of the speculative reason, by a natural participation of divine wisdom, there is in us the knowledge of certain general principles, but not proper knowledge of each single truth, 
such as that contained in the divine wisdom. So too, on the part of the practical reason, man has a natural participation of the eternal law, according to certain general principles, but not as regards the particular determinations of individual cases, which are, however, contained in the eternal law. Hence the need for human reason to proceed further to sanction them by law. Reply to Objection 2. Human reason is not of itself the rule of things, but the principles impressed on it by nature are general rules and measures of all things relating to human conduct, whereof the natural reason is the rule and measure, although it is not the measure of things that are from nature. Reply to Objection 3. The practical reason is concerned with practical matters, which are singular and contingent, but not with necessary things, with which the speculative reason is concerned. Wherefore, human laws cannot have that inerrancy that belongs to the demonstrated conclusions of sciences. Nor is it necessary for every measure to be altogether unerring and certain, but according as it is possible in its own particular genus. Fourth article. Whether there was any need for a divine law. Objection 1. It would seem that there was no need for a divine law. Because, as stated above in Article 2, the natural law is a participation in us of the eternal law. But the eternal law is a divine law, as stated above in Article 1. Therefore, there was no need for a divine law in addition to the natural law, and human laws derived therefrom. Objection to. Further, it is written in Ecclesiasticus 15.14 that God left man in the hand of his own counsel. Now counsel is an act of reason as stated above in question 14, article 1. Therefore, man was left to the direction of his reason. But a dictate of human reason is a human law as stated above in Article 3. Therefore, there is no need for man to be governed also by a divine law. Objection 3. Further, human nature is more self-sufficing than irrational creatures. But irrational creatures have no divine law besides the natural inclination impressed on them. Much less, therefore, should the rational creature have a divine law in addition to the natural law. On the contrary, David prayed God to set his law before him, saying, in Psalm 118, verse 33, Set before me for a law the way of thy justifications, O Lord. I answer that, Besides the natural and the human law, it was necessary for the directing of human conduct to have a divine law, and this for four reasons. First, because it is by law that man is directed 
how to perform his proper acts in view of his last end and indeed if man were ordained to no other end than that which is proportionate to his natural faculty there would be no need for a man to have any further direction on the part of his reason besides the natural law and human law which is derived from it but since man is ordained to an end of eternal happiness which is improportionate to man's natural faculty as stated above in question five article five therefore it was necessary that besides the natural and the human law man should be directed to his end by a law given by god secondly because on account of the uncertainty of human judgment especially on contingent and particular matters different people form different judgments on human acts whence also different and contrary laws result in order therefore that man may know without any doubt what he ought to do and what he ought to avoid it was necessary for man to be directed in his proper acts by a law given by god for it is certain that such a law cannot err thirdly because man can make laws in those matters of which he is competent to judge but man is not competent to judge of interior movements that are hidden but only of exterior acts which appear and yet for the perfection of virtue it is necessary for man to conduct himself aright in both kinds of acts consequently human law could not sufficiently curb and direct interior acts and it was necessary for this purpose that a divine law should supervene fourthly because as augustine says in on free will one five and six human law cannot punish or forbid all evil deeds since while aiming at doing away with all evils it would do away with many good things and would hinder the advance of the common good which is necessary for human intercourse in order therefore that no evil might remain unforbidden and unpunished it was necessary for the divine law to supervene whereby all sins are forbidden and these four causes are touched upon in psalm 118 verse 8 where it is said the law of the lord is unspotted that is allowing no foulness of sin converting souls because it directs not only exterior but also interior acts the testimony of the lord is faithful because of the certainty of what is true and right giving wisdom to little ones by directing man to an end supernatural and divine reply to objection one by the natural law the eternal law is participated proportionately to the capacity of human nature but to his supernatural end man needs to be directed in a yet higher way hence the additional law given by god whereby man shares more perfectly in the eternal law reply to objection to counsel is a kind of inquiry hence it must proceed from some principles 
nor is it enough for it to proceed from principles imparted by nature, which are the precepts of the natural law, for the reasons given above. But there is need for certain additional principles, namely, the precepts of the divine law. Reply to Objection 3. Irrational creatures are not ordained to a higher end than that which is proportionate to their natural powers. Consequently, the comparison fails. Fifth article. Whether there is but one divine law. Objection 1. It would seem that there is but one divine law. Because, where there is one king in one kingdom, there is but one law. Now the whole of mankind is compared to God as to one king. According to Psalm 46, 8, God is the king of all the earth. Therefore, there is but one divine law. Objection 2. Further, Every law is directed to the end which the lawgiver intends for those for whom he makes the law. But God intends one and the same thing for all men, since according to 1 Timothy 2.4, He will have all men to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, there is but one divine law. Objection 3. Further, the divine law seems to be more akin to the eternal law, which is one, than the natural law, according as the revelation of grace is of a higher order than natural knowledge. Therefore, much more is the divine law but one. On the contrary, the Apostle says in Hebrews 7.12, the priesthood being translated, it is necessary that a translation also be made of the law. But the priesthood is twofold, as stated in the same passage, notably the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Christ. Therefore, the divine law is twofold, namely the old law and the new law. I answer that, as stated in the first part, question 30, article 3, distinction is the cause of number. Now things may be distinguished in two ways. First, as those things that are altogether specifically different, for example, a horse and an ox. Secondly, as perfect and imperfect in the same species, for example, a boy, and a man. And in this way the divine law is divided into old and new. Hence the Apostle, in Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25, compares the state of man under the old law to that of a child, under a pedagogue, but the state under the new law to that of a full-grown man who is no longer under a pedagogue. Now the perfection and imperfection of these two laws is to be taken in connection with the three conditions pertaining to law, as stated above. 
for in the first place it belongs to law to be directed to the common good as to its end as stated above in question 90 article 2 this good may be twofold it may be a sensible and earthly good and to this man was directly ordained by the old law wherefore at the very outset of the law the people were invited to the earthly kingdom of the Canaanites. confer exodus 3 verses 8 and 17 again it may be an intelligible and heavenly good and to this man is ordained by the new law wherefore at the very beginning of his preaching christ invited men to the kingdom of heaven saying in matthew 4:17 do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand hence augustine says in his letter against faustus 4 that promises of temporal goods are contained in the old testament for which reason it is called old but the promise of eternal life belongs to the new testament secondly it belongs to the law to direct human acts according to the order of righteousness confer article four wherein also the new law surpasses the old law since it directs our internal acts according to matthew five twenty unless your justice abound more than that of the scribes and pharisees you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven hence the saying that the old law restrains the hand but the new law controls the mind confer the sentences three d forty thirdly it belongs to the law to induce men to observe its commandments this the old law did by the fear of punishment but the new law by love which is poured into our hearts by the grace of christ bestowed in the new law but foreshadowed in the old hence augustine says in his against adimantus disciple of the manichaeans 17 that there is little difference between the law and the gospel fear and love translators note the little difference refers to the small difference between the latin words timor and amor fear and love reply to objection one as the father of a family issues different commands to the children and to the adults so also the one king god in his one kingdom gave one law to men while they were yet imperfect and another more perfect law when by the preceding law they had been led to a greater capacity for divine things reply to objection to the salvation of man could not be achieved otherwise than through christ according to acts 412 there is no other name given to men whereby we must be saved consequently the law that brings all to salvation could not be given until after the coming of christ but before his coming it was necessary to give to the people of whom christ was to be born a law containing certain rudiments of righteousness unto salvation in order to prepare them to receive him reply to objection three 
the natural law directs man by way of certain general precepts common to both the perfect and the imperfect wherefore it is one and the same for all but the divine law directs man also in certain particular matters to which the perfect and imperfect do not stand in the same relation hence the necessity for the divine law to be twofold as already explained sixth article whether there is a law in the fomes of sin objection one it would seem that there is no law of the fomes of sin for isidore says in his etymologies five that the law is based on reason but the fomes of sin is not based on reason but deviates from it therefore the fomes has not the nature of a law objection to further every law is binding so that those who do not obey it are called transgressors but man is not called a transgressor from not following the instigations of the fomes but rather from his following them therefore the fomes has not the nature of a law objection three further the law is ordained to the common good as stated above in question ninety article two but the fomes inclines us not to the common but to our own private good therefore the fomes has not the nature of sin on the contrary the apostle says in romans seven twenty three i see another law in my members fighting against the law of my mind i answer that as stated above in article two as well as in question ninety article one first reply the law as to its essence resides in him that rules and measures but by way of participation in that which is ruled and measured so that every inclination or ordination which may be found in things subject to the law is called a law by participation as stated above in article two as well as in question ninety article one first reply now those who are subject to a law may receive a twofold inclination from the lawgiver first in so far as he directly inclines his subjects to something sometimes indeed different subjects to different acts in this way we may say that there is a military law and a mercantile law secondly indirectly thus by the very fact that a lawgiver deprives a subject of some dignity the latter passes into another order so as to be under another law as it were thus if a soldier be turned out of the army he becomes a subject of rural or of mercantile legislation accordingly under the divine lawgiver various creatures have various natural inclinations so that what is as it were a law for one is against the law for another 
thus i might say that fierceness is in a way the law of a dog but against the law of a sheep or another meek animal and so the law of man which by the divine ordinance is allotted to him according to his proper natural condition is that he should act in accordance with reason and this law was so effective in the primitive state that nothing either beside or against reason could take man unawares but when man turned his back on god he fell under the influence of his sensual impulses in fact this happens to each one individually the more he deviates from the path of reason so that after a fashion he is likened to the beasts that are led by the impulse of sensuality according to psalm forty eight twenty one man when he was in honour did not understand he hath been compared to senseless beasts and made like to them so then this very inclination of sensuality which is called the fomes in other animals has simply the nature of a law yet only in so far as a law may be said to be in such things by reason of a direct inclination but in man it has not the nature of law in this way rather it is a deviation from the law of reason but since by the just sentence of god man is destitute of original justice and his reason bereft of its vigor this impulse of sensuality whereby he is led in so far as it is a penalty following from the divine law depriving man of his proper dignity has the nature of a law reply to objection one this argument considers the fomes in itself as an incentive to evil it is not thus that it has the nature of a law as stated above but according as it results from the justice of the divine law it is as though we were to say that the law allows a nobleman to be condemned to hard labor for some misdeed reply to objection to this argument considers law in the light of a rule or measure for it is in this sense that those who deviate from the law become transgressors but the fomes is not a law in this respect but by a kind of participation as stated above reply to objection three this argument considers the fomes as to its proper inclination and not as to its origin and yet if the inclination of sensuality be considered as it is in other animals thus it is ordained to the common good namely to the preservation of nature in the species or in the individual and this is in man also in so far as sensuality is subject to reason but it is called fomes in so far as it strays from the order of reason End of question 91. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.